Jedi decisions. That's right. We always got to make decisions. Federico, why we always got to make decisions out here, man? Because we got to change the world, right? There you go. And to be, you got to be serious about it. You got to look at what's going on. You got to figure out what you need. Where's it? And then look at the people who are actually trying to do and actually are doing major, major contributions to trying to keep the planet and all the people in it going on, right? And not going on under the same hellhole setup we have, but actually moving on to a whole, whole different kind of world, all right? So keep that in mind as we're going through the show today. And, uh, and I have to say something right now because it's been so damn long since I've seen him. Federico Garcia, yeah, who is on the board. And it's just a real pleasure to see you here, man. It's a real pleasure to have you back. And oh, look, listen, listen. There's a whole crowd cheering for you now. <laughs> okay, there you go. All right. All right, so this is the Michael Slate Show, and I'm Michael Slate, and we've got a very important show for you today. So let's just uh, get started, all right? At the back end of the show, we're going to be talking to two people from a play presented recently in Los Angeles, and that's uh, The Children. That's what it's called. It's, and we'll be talking to the director, Simon Levy, and one of the actors, Elizabeth Elias Huffman. So don't miss that, all right? You're going to definitely want to be around on that. And opening the show up, and this is something that I am really, really pleased with, actually, here. Um, opening the show up, I'm very happy to be introducing Kristen Henning, the author of a remarkable new book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. Nothing to laugh at, something to keep in mind, and something to always, always be thinking about what the hell America is doing to people. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Sure. Well, let's jump into this because there's so much, you know, and I think when I, when I first spoke to you, I, I was making the point that how moved I was by everything that you've brought forward in this. And it's something that actually a whole lot of people don't even have any understanding of any of this, you know, and, and all the stuff that's been going on and what impact it's had on people. So I really, again, as I said, I really want to thank you for this. Thank you for being here and thank you for the, the work that you're doing. So let's jump into it. All right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Molotov cocktail or science experiment. Youth named were arrested for bringing, uh, there were some youth who were arrested for bringing explosive devices to D.C. schools, all right? And, and that's, that's the District of Columbia, where I used to live a long time ago. <laughs> I think they ran me out of there. Anyway, the, um, you know, the, 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 youth, the youth named arrested that are arrested for bringing uh, explosive devices to the D.C. schools. There was something there that immediately drew my attention, that drew your attention, actually, too, as well. And, and that's one of the reasons I think you really stepped up around this. You know, based on seeing that you knew that something was going on, something else was going on, and you eventually began to, uh, basically began this young guy's lawyer. You became this young guy's lawyer. And maybe you could tell people in the beginning to talk to them about who is this young guy, and what was happening with him? Absolutely. So, you know, I opened the book with a story about a client um, that I call Eric for purposes of the book. But Eric was a 13-year-old boy who, on a Saturday night, was watching a movie. And he saw someone making a Molotov cocktail in the movie. And so in his 13-year-old brain, he said, oh, 
that's cool. Let me see if I can make something that looks like that. And so he went into his kitchen. He grabbed a glass bottle. He began to pour liquids into the bottle. He didn't research how do you make a Molotov cocktail. So he just poured uh, items in, his, in, in the bottle that weren't flammable at all uh, and certainly not in, in combination with one another. He put a, the, closed the cap. And before he closed the cap to the bottle, he got a piece of toilet paper, which you and I and our adult brains know is never going to catch on fire or never going to burn and serve as a wick. It would burn out before it even got to the, the top of the, of, of the bottle. And so he, this is a Saturday night. He puts it in his book bag. And he forgets all about it because he's a kid. On Monday morning, his mother drives him to school. He puts his book bag through the metal detector, and a school resource officer says to him, hey, what is this? To which he immediately says, oh, that's nothing. You can throw that away. And he goes on to class. And then as you indicated, Michael, that became a long ordeal for this young man, um, for this young boy. What am I saying? You know, nine months he spent in the court system with us representing him, trying to convince everyone that this wasn't flammable. He got no benefit of the doubt whatsoever when he told the school resource officer he forgot it was there, that it wasn't going to catch on fire, and he wasn't trying to blow up the school. So here's the kicker to the story, though. I was doing a presentation in New Haven, Connecticut, um, some, shortly after I started representing Eric. And I happened to share that story, and a white woman came up to me, and she said, my son did the exact same thing. And when I asked her what happened to her son, she said that the school put him in advanced classes, in a chemistry class, um, to allow him to play out his curiosity. And so for me, that was the, the contrast in how two children were treated so radically different for the same normal adolescent curiosity, creativity. Um, it, it just, it, it really was representative of what we see happening across the country in the differential treatment of black children. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, part of the thing is, is no, as you're saying, you talk to this young guy, you found out that he was not a gangster, but a typical 13-year-old kid. And, you know, the, 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 the point about the, what he was saying, <laughs> They, they actually had the, you know, I mean, it was incredible to have the, have the put out the whole thing that somehow he committed a crime. And it was just, and again, it was just trying to be creative, as you're pointing out. And it's something that, you know, look, I know with my kid, he was constantly doing stuff like that. He was, you know, and we were constantly right. getting visits from the police, but not, nothing like what's been, what's been put down on this. It's, it's, it's sort of very heavy when you look at a whole, a person's a kid, a young guy's man, woman, a young kid, their life could could have that you know could spin on or could turn around on what happens to them, what's done to them in the course of this something like this. They it could go for anywhere from death to, to basically thrown you know thrown into a whole other way of living that doesn't you know doesn't isn't necessarily where where he might might have wanted to end up. And it's something that's actually sort of there, and it's always there. And then you run into this where it happens on such a tremendously, you know, just sickening uh, way, way of doing it, of, of this happening. This whole thing is a sickening, you know, thing. So, Right. Yeah. Um, it, it really go is. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
No, but I just, you know, I was, as I listened to you, you know, not only did he get put, you know, through the court system, but they charged him with a very serious felony. Mm-hmm. They charged him with attempted arson and then, you know, possession of this Molotov cocktail. So when you come through the system, you end up looking, you know, not only, you know, as, as someone with a criminal record, but a serious criminal record, someone who is potentially violent, which, as you said, you know, your life can turn and change on a moment like that. And so that's absolutely right. Now, the thing of, of what, what this young guy did is, is he, it, was, it was nothing. It wasn't even so, it was not anything at all that could be even, you know, in the wildest dream composed, you know, people composing of these, composing these dreams that somehow are this se- seemingly reality that he was doing these things to, to basically, you know, make, bring damage to the school to, you know, do all this other stuff. And he, right. you know, and the fact that he actually did end up getting some, some very serious trouble, as you're saying, he was, I mean, think about this, a kid, a kid being seriously charged on having a Molotov cocktail. You know, that is not, that's not something that you play with. That's not something that, that you know, that, and, and one, it's not just in general, but it's also saying something about what are people saying, what, what is the system saying about people, kids that are, that, are, that are just his age or people who from other nationalities that may not meet the, the, the quality that, 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 that the, this system seems to really want to, you know, put people down about, you know, so it's sort of, to me, it seems like it's a very, very, it's a, it's a, just a whacked out thing, but it's also something that really should whack people when they see this or hear about this happening. So, and again, you know, running into legal trouble when he, when he gave this, this, this to a school authority to get rid of it, what happens there, you know? He ends up getting some uh, trouble seriously charged on, on, on having a Molotov cocktail, and that actually depends, that, that actually does, I mean, it has an impact. We should talk about that. It has an impact. Right. And so, you know, in writing this book, I learned that there is a growing body of research documenting the extraordinary psychological trauma that black children experience in their encounters with the police. And, and when we think about it, just even from common sense, that would make sense, particularly in light of what we have seen in the news, right? So high-profile incidents of police violence. And I want to be very clear that even when an officer, um, even, even if we were to say, even if we say that those incidents are outliers and that there are many, which I firmly believe there are many, you know, well-meaning uh, police officers who, um, you know, believe in, you know, racial equity and, you know, believe in treating people fairly. But that even with that, right, that um, we've got to recognize that the blue uniform today carries with it sort of the history of race relations, that our country has used police officers at different times during our history to, um, to, to enforce racial segregation, for example, in the civil rights era. Um, and so... Uh, the history of that blue uniform really carries forward and is transmitted to children. So that's one thing. Plus, they see on the television, on the Internet, um, on social media, these incidents of police violence. So when an officer, even a well-meaning officer, 
who's there to do a wellness check and to make sure a child is safe um, uh, has to understand that a black child may very well be afraid. Um, so that's one aspect of it, right? And there's just growing, um, but, but so there's that, right? And then the other piece of it is that statistically the evidence shows that black children are far more likely to be stopped, arrested, frisked, searched, um, tried and prosecuted in adult courts, even when, you know, the self-report data about crime shows that black children actually don't commit more crime than white children. And so you've got this disproportionate uh, policing, disproportionate criminalization of black children. And the research shows that black children who live in heavily surveilled neighborhoods, who are the frequent targets of police stops, experience high rates of fear, anxiety, depression, hopelessness. They become hypervigilant, meaning that they're always on guard, always uh, worried about and distrusting of police officers, and that distrust of police officers transfers to other authority figures. And so, again, even when an officer means well, um, you you know, the, the risk of harm is still there. So we need to be very careful and thoughtful about when it's appropriate to um, to, to engage uh, uh young people with traditional law enforcement approaches. And that's true of children with any race. And so, you know, thinking about police in schools, we're creating a climate, right? We have young people who talk about feeling like, um, you know, they're going to school that looks like a detention facility instead of a school that looks like a safe haven that is productive and conducive to learning. So it really does have a tremendous impact. Mm-hmm. Now, Kristen, yeah, you, I, I keep thinking of this because it's um, it's one of the things you've brought up a lot, and, this, and you're, you're just sort of pushing on it now, and I think it's really important for people to understand this or to hear it. You know, this different strokes for different people, this, this kind of situation where hateful lies were nailed on when uh, Eric could not have uh, proved differently and was eventually kicked out of school for this. And was the and what was what happened with it? Was that the end of the story for Eric? I mean, what what actually happened with um, with him after that? Well, so you know, it's interesting. So you know, I always want people to read the book. I get back to what happens to Eric at the end of the book, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but it all right. But you know, in the short term, um, what happened with the with the school piece is exactly right. So he was immediately. Um, it, it, it suspended and expelled, initially suspended, then ultimately expelled from school. He was excluded from all of his extracurricular activities also. Well, let me actually do them in pieces. He was suspended and he was expelled. We, I was his criminal defense lawyer or his youth defense lawyer in juvenile court. We then engaged with special education lawyers in the city as well, and they advocated for a reversal of his expulsion, um, which took many months, but it ultimately did happen. He was allowed to return to school, but even when he was allowed to return to school, he was still excluded from all of his extracurricular activities. And I wanted to highlight that because this is a kid who was engaged and productive and creative and thoughtful. He was very active in drama club um, and tutoring of other kids, even though he was just 13, you know, opportunities to tutor even younger kids. And so he was excluded from all of that. And I cannot emphasize enough, and I talk about this in the book, the ways in which 
everything that happened to him was um, was even more detrimental because of his stage in development. So in other words, we are removing him from school at a time in his development when you most want him to be in an academic environment where he can thrive, be supported, um, have oversight um, and attention um, from adults. We are excluding him um, at a time when children are most likely to be embarrassed and impacted by how their teachers and peers perceive them, right? So you kick him out, and and, and literally he was dragged out of, you know, you know, or, or removed from his classroom and arrested very publicly such that everybody in school knew that he was the one who had been arrested for bringing this alleged Molotov cocktail. That matters so much when you're 13 years old and everybody, you're just realizing that everybody has an opinion about you. Your teachers have an opinion about you, about what you can accomplish, about whether you can be a troublemaker or, or, or not. Um, your, your friends or your peers um, begin to put you in a box right? Is he one of the cool kids who I'm going to hang out with because I like to get in trouble or are the smart kids going to gravitate to him? So there were just so many features of, of, of what happened to Eric that really impact and shape whether or not there is healthy adolescent development. Mm-hmm. You know, as, I, as I've thought about the things that you've, that you've spoken about and the things I've read that you've done, and, and it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's incredible that you you know, you actually, you're there, you've seen, you've seen what happens to people. And so many people don't see this. They don't see this at all. And you say that there was, you know, basically you said that there's, you know, look, as you were saying, there's different strokes for different people and hateful lies were nailed on when, when Eric could, uh, could not have proved differently and was eventually kicked out of school. What was the end? And which was the end of the story for Eric, you know, that's what, that was what they were saying. And, and, and you say that there, that there was no way that Eric could have convinced anyone. It, it wasn't just a question of, you know, like said, well, come on, you know, if he just, if he, if he just says, if he really wasn't guilty, nothing would have happened to him, you know. And he, but you said that there's, there was absolutely no way that this young kid could have convinced anyone that he wasn't some kind of gangster. Now let's talk. About what was the impact? What might the impact of that be? And and across the board. It, it, this notion of not giving children, black children, and let's be really clear about that, black children the benefit of the doubt is tragic, right? We in our country have placed great value in our children and, you know, the presumptions of innocence, right? We show children grace and tolerance and forgiveness. Um, yes, we will redirect them, but we expect that they will, we know what adolescents do. They are, you know, they test limits and they push boundaries, which mind you, he wasn't doing any of that. He literally was just being creative. But even in those circumstances, right, we accept that. We remember what it was like to be a teenager ourselves. And for those of us who are parents, we remember what it was like to raise children. And we know that we all came out just fine. And in fact, we may have come out better because we tested some boundaries and we pushed some limits. And so, you know, um, you know, we, we, 
we value it, we appreciate, and we protect our children in our culture. But with black children, we don't want to give them the benefit of the doubt or that grace or that tolerance. The presumption is that they're dangerous and they're violent. And so there was nothing that Eric could say or do to convince anyone otherwise. Literally, the fire department showed up, the police department showed up um, in, in huge numbers. It was on the news. I mean, this is like a 13-year-old kid, and if you, you know, which everybody had met him, you know, when, when I met him. And when I say he was a kid, he was a kid, and an earnest kid, smart and, and, and fun and cute and just. You know, um, it's just uh, appalling to think that we would presume him guilty um, uh, in those ways. And so you ask me, you know, what kind of impact, one of the next layers of impact, it has a real impact on your identity. So adolescence is the time when we figure out who we are and who we are, who we can become, right? And so when you're told um, or it's message, the message that you are given is that you're not to be believed, you're not to be trusted, um, you're the the presumption is that you'll never succeed and do that you won't be the chemist, that you won't be the scientist. Um, that sets limits. It sets a, a, a limits on the vision that you have for yourself. It sets limits on the actual opportunities that you're given as a black child. So all of it is, 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 um, is, is really important for us to understand. Yeah, we're going to come right back to that in a minute. But I do want to remind people that this is the Michael Slate Show and and listeners, this is part of this is part one, and we'll be talking. This is part one of the show, and we'll be talking to Kristen Henning on future shows as well. And I, but I want to, I really want to get this, you know, get this nailed in because so many, you know, look, so many people, and I remember even when I was a kid, you know, it's sort of, you know, sometimes, you know, when you get, especially if you're in in one of these neighborhoods where people don't like, I I grew up in a neighborhood that where kids were actually seen as, you know, your parents loved you, but you were really you're get you're being a goddamn fool. <laughs> That's what my father used to always tell me. He say he grabbed me and said, "Hey, right, you know, right. you're just being a fool, kid." But the thing is, you know, what you're what you're laying bare is really important for people to understand. You say that there was there was no way that Eric could have convinced anyone that he wasn't. It wasn't like he it wasn't like he decided not to. There was no way that he could have convinced anyone that he wasn't some kind of gangster. And with that kind of impact, what kind of impact would that have? across the board on this. I mean, this is something that people don't ever really take into consideration, and it's something that can can, can actually shape the life of, of a human, of a, of a young kid, forever. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, again, it, it just it reduces opportunities um, that young black children are given across the board. And so, you know, the thing is this. It's the stories that... Um, you know, so like I said, this story was told on the news. You know, kid brings Molotov cocktail to school. It feeds the narrative that America has had for a long time that um, black children are dangerous. Um, and the narrative about black children um, has has existed for a long time. Um, and so, or, or another way that I like to say it is America has a long history of failing to treat black children as children. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, from the era of slavery, when uh, black children were perceived to be the property of their uh, purported masters, to the civil rights era, um, when um, you know black children became the um, uh, I don't know the, co- the 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 commodity, or um, they were used in the debate 
about integration of communities and particularly centering around the integration of schools. And so Emmett Till, at the age of 14, gets lynched, you know, um, in order as a symbolic statement to America that we will not tolerate integration and that we will not have black children intermixing with white children or, or white women. And in order to do that, in order to justify such a horrendous act in history, you then have to create a narrative to justify it. And the narrative is that black children um, are a threat and they are a threat to the rest of America and have to be kept in their place, even if that means murdering them. So it's that narrative that um, that lives on today. And so you ask, you know, what's the, the you know, impact even beyond um uh, Eric's life, it is that it reinforces time and time again these very early intentional narratives that black children are dangerous, right? And you saw that narrative repeat itself in the 80s and the 90s when, um, you know, there was a temporary uptick in crime in urban centers in the United States, and politicians grabbed onto that and manipulated race and crime for their political game. Um, and people will remember the super predator myth, right? And it was a myth. It was a pseudo-scientific myth that was later disproven, right, where the architect of the myth later admitted in public that he was wrong. But it was that myth about black children, you know, um, uh, that we were going to have a band of black children taking over the country to rape, maim, and kill um, all the people. That was a, a narrative, an intentional narrative, and it lives on today. And so then when you see an incident like this, normal adolescent behaviors, normal adolescent creativity gets transferred or interpreted and treated and criminalized you know, as some violent act, it perpetuates this narrative that we have about black children being somehow uniquely different than other children in the country. Even though the white woman in Connecticut, you know, said her son did the same thing. Even you are saying, you know, your son did similar things. This, this is just, you know, but black children are seen as so incredibly harmful and to be feared. And it's really tragic for us as a country. Yeah, yeah. Except, that, you know, the, the biggest tragedy is that we have that too many people have not seen what the reality in, in this country country is and for for many many people i mean on, and on many different levels and for, for many different reasons you know this whole thing of where people you know we, we tend to either look to the side or you know say well it happens to some people it happens to the kid down the street whatever but what you're what you're laying out and what you're arguing for i think is extremely important that this is something that's systematic you know and, and you, you've actually talked about this where, you know, even pointing out this thing, there was no way Eric uh, could, could have convinced anyone, you know, that he wasn't some kind of gangster. You know, this is, and for that, that statement alone to be out there, it sort of says something about a whole lot about the whole way the country is run. And I was, I was thinking about this because, you know, as you say, you say that, that, that this book grew, uh, grew off of your anger. The, the book that, we, that we're talking about, which I got to give it back, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredibly important piece. And... People should be reading it. You know, they should be reading it. The name of the book is, and I, <laughs> I've given this to more people to look at, and I've had to fight to get it back. But it's the rage of innocence, and it's something that people, we need, you know, we need to know that we need the, the race, and it's something that we really need to, you know, bring into people's life because it, it's too easy. It's too too many times we've watched kids, 
you know, whether it's like teenagers or people that are people that people that are grown or whatever, 20 years old or something, and are just marched off to these to these prisons that determine a lot of the rest of their life, you know, in terms of whether including whether they ever even get out, you know. So it's sort of like you look, you think about this, talking about what happened to him and how he was actually hit pretty hard by the powers that be. This was not this was not something like, OK, you know, you just, you know, go along. We're, you're free now. You, you know, you can, you, we're not going to bother you. You know, we, we understand. So it was, it was actually, he was actually hit pretty hard by the powers that be. So let's, let's give people an, an actually a, a sort of, a, and I'd like to say <laughs> a really, you know, something that will really smack people in the head to, to understand what's going on. He was actually pretty hard hit by the powers that be. What happened to him and others like him should be known by everybody. Can we do that a little bit more on that? Because it, was, it wasn't just him that this is happening. It wasn't, they didn't just single out one person. Right. You know, there were so many others. Well, I mean, yeah, and so let's be clear that my book opens with the story of Eric, but that it is chock full of examples of young people um, um, that one, one set of, of youth that I talk about in the book are black children that I have represented in the nation's capital. The other set of children that I talk about throughout the book are children, many of whom we have heard about in the national media. So, for example, um, you know, Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice is even like a, a clearer example for many people, a 12-year-old boy who was shot in less than three seconds of an officer's arrival on the scene, and he was playing with a toy gun. And if, you know, you know, statistically, the number of children in our country who have played with toy guns is just astounding. And there's some stats I, you know, I offer up in the book um, and how easy it is to get guns on any, um, you know, any big box store, <laughs> you know, that we won't name or online vendor, you can always Google the top 10, you know, toy guns for the year, and they do a top 10 list. That's how important and popular, I should say, you know, toy guns are in American culture. So, you know, I, I say that to say the, the, the book is full of examples. And, and to be clear, I wanted to offer case examples because I wanted to the, the world, the readers, to know that it's not just those high-profile cases that you see um, once in a while or and now increasingly far too often. It's not just those cases, but in my own practice, as one lawyer in Washington, D.C., in a city, um, I was able to give many more examples. And uh, um, as you indicated, I, I, I do trainings all over the country, and I meet lawyers and prosecutors and judges, all of whom give more and more examples. So it's a very, very um, uh, pervasive problem. And then the final thing I'll say about that is not only are there stories in the book, but I marry the stories with statistics and with research, but all told in a way that it is meant for an average reader. So we've got um, college students, high school students, um, uh, you know, professional students reading the same book, and it all is accessible for everyone to read. And, and here, just like you said, it's not just Eric. It, it, and Eric is not an outlier. There are 
many, many children in pockets of this country who are living um, with this hyper-criminalization of their normal childhood behaviors. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to be wrapping this up real soon, but I, I just had to ask just a couple more things. And, you know, because it, it's something that, that hits hard. Um, if you have your eyes open, if your heart is actually understanding what's going on, if your understanding is, is, is there with understanding what needs to be understood, you know, and, and a lot of what you're talking about, and, you know, you talk about this, the title of this, uh, of, you know, the introduction, um, this is, you know, we're talking about Molotov cocktail or science experiment, you know, and I, and I thought that your example that you raised in this was, was very telling about the character of this society, you know, and because this is a, a young black man, you know, and what he experienced compared to similarly acting young white people. And that's, a, you know, there's something there that people need to understand. It wasn't just a, it wasn't just a, you know, a, a spoof that happened. It wasn't just something that he just moved into it. There was any, this young guy, young black guy who had, oh, I don't know, something that was actually could be, you could be doing whatever you wanted to with it, but he was actually not doing all the things that they exposed, that they thought was normal for him, for black people to do. And they went after him on, on this, this basis. And I think what you said, that we're not just afraid of children with guns, we're afraid of black children. That's what they're saying. You know, that's what the system is saying, right? That we're not just afraid of children with guns, we're, we're, we are afraid of black children. That's a very provocative, very heavy statement. And I'd like you to say, say something on that um, before we wrap it up, but I think it's just really important that people grasp what you're saying there and what it means. Yeah, I mean, in that sentence in particular is um, this idea that we, as a country, we've had moments, particularly after high-profile mass shootings, for example, um, in Columbine back in, in Colorado back in 1999, we all became afraid of the potential for a mass shooting in our own local um, schools. and uh, um, And so when I heard about Eric's arrest, you know, when I was assigned to represent him in court, I thought, I was convinced that, well, maybe everyone is overreacting to this potential Molotov cocktail in light of of what we had seen previously with mass shootings and mass killings. But the more I learned in talking to that woman in Connecticut and talking to other, you know, white friends and um, parents, it became clear to me that we weren't just overreacting to Eric because we were afraid of mass shootings and mass killings in schools. We were overreacting to Eric precisely because he was a black child, right? Um, And that we would have, at the age of 13, we would have understood that liquid bottle quite differently um, uh, had it been brought into the school in a book bag. And again, he forgot about it. And he told them that they could throw it away. He wasn't even trying to hold it. He wasn't even trying to keep it. Um, But, you know, we didn't give him that benefit of the doubt, not because we were afraid of mass shootings, but because we were afraid of black children. And so that's what that's about. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for, for the work that you're doing, but also very much for being on the show today. And let's stay in touch around this. This and right. other Thank things. You so much for me, sure. Take care, and we'll, I look forward to talking with you again, but not on the same, not on the same, uh, the same thing. We got to actually have to make right. some kind of, you know, pe- people have to learn that there, there's, there's a line that you that you have to, you can't cross. You know, that you can't just say, right. 
how long can you t- turn your eyes away? You know, and to me, that day, that day, that 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 time is long gone, and people need to pay attention. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. Right. And, and thank you so much for having you. me again. Take sure. Care. All right. Take care. Bye now. All right. You're listening to the Michael Slate Show, and we've been talking with Kristen Henning, author of the Rage of Innocence. Now we're going to take a musical break and be right back. So stay tuned. I wanna hear your thoughts and see it all like a hidden web through the walls. You wanna go out tonight? You want to know what it's like when the wind's in your lungs and the fire is in those eyes. There is a rose now, dance tonight. Can you tell me All right, now I want to make a special announcement. On next week's show. We'll be spending an hour with Carl Dix, a representative of the Revolutionary Communist Party, the Revcoms. We'll be talking about a major leap toward fascism, one on the same level as the January 6th coup attempt. I'm talking about the acquittal of fascist proud boy Kyle Rittenhouse. On November 19th, a nearly all-white jury in Kenosha acquitted Rittenhouse of all charges of the murder of Joseph Jojo Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber, and the severe wounding of Gage Grosskreutz. The heroes who confronted this fascist vigilante during protests against the police shooting of Jacob Blake Jr. in August 2020. This trial and acquittal is not just a continuation of America's vicious history of white supremacy and of its unjust justice system. The legalization of violence and terror carried out by the civilian vigilantes is a major leap towards fascism. The Rittenhouse verdict puts a judicial stamp of approval on organized fascist rights to bring high-powered weapons to protests, brandish them at progressive demonstrators, kill people they deem violent rioters, and anybody who dares to try to disarm them. This is an inescapable challenge to decent people. This trial and the outrageous acquittal are now at the cutting edge of a very dangerous development. If people close their eyes and hope it will all just go away, it will likely lead into a downward spiral of increasing fascist terror and increasing passivity on the part of the decent people. Only by seriously confronting the reality of the situation can we act to transform it by bringing forward more and more determined resistance and most fundamentally revolution to defeat this drive towards fascism and to uproot the whole system of capitalism and imperialism which arose and thrives on white supremacy, and has given rise to and nurtures fascism. That's drawn from an article on Revcom.us. So tune in next week. And meanwhile, follow the Revcoms on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, follow Refuse Fascism on social media or go to RefuseFascism.org. And you can find all of this on my social media accounts. All right, now we are going to... uh... Well, we're still, we're actually having a little bit of trouble, but there's one of my favorite people is on the line, and I can hear him saying, hey, what's going on here? Why aren't you talking to me? All right, questions for the play, about the play, The Children. And I'm very, very pleased to be welcoming to the play. Oh, let me see. <laughs> Simon. Simon, you know, for the, for the, for the hell of me, 
I have just lost your last name, but it's not. Uh, what is your last name, Simon? Levy, L-E-V-Y. Levy, okay, that's it. I'm sorry, man. I, everything got mixed up here. And I've known you for, what, about a 1,000 years now? Okay, so I Simon know. Levy. Yeah, we've been a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's jump on this, man, because it's, I think this is, I saw this, and I was, this play that you, you're putting on, you know, now, and I think it's actually, it, it was one of the, it was a very powerful play. It was something that really, really jumped on me, and it made me just like, and it had a major impact. So let's talk about, you know, tell people a little bit about what it is. What 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 is? Tell us something about the play before we dive into the all the specifics. I want to get give people a, a sort of over, overview of it. Yeah. So uh, it's a, a, about uh, uh, three uh, British people uh, on the uh, east coast of England. Um, two of them are a married couple. They're all in their sixties. And they are nuclear engineers who uh, worked on a nearby uh, nuclear power plant. Uh, the couple are uh, living uh, outside the exclusion zone because there was an accident uh, at the power plant. And so they're living in this cottage uh, uh, away from the plant. And they're visited by an old friend, Rose, uh, who they haven't seen in 38 years. Um, and so it's about their former relationship and their current relationship. And you're not really sure why Rose is there. I'm not sure I want to reveal that over the air right now mm -hmm. uh, because it's the, uh, one of the surprises in the play. Um, but she comes and she basically presents uh, the married couple uh, with a moral dilemma, which is the, uh, the power uh, and the point of uh, Lucy Kirkwood's play. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, if I start to go anywhere, anywhere near violating that, what you just said, that's start yelling. Okay. <laughs> because I was really moved by this. I was really moved by this man. And it's, you know, and I, I really, I like the work you guys do at the fountain theater and, 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 you know, all of you who are you know producing and, and all of this stuff. I never, I have not, I have not yet found a play there that I thought, Oh, that was okay. It was so, so I didn't like it. I've always really liked what you guys have put on. And this one really particularly struck me. And you know well, when thank you, you, I mean, you know as you as you know, I mean the play is about you know what is our responsibility uh, to the future, mm -hmm. what is our responsibility to the planet, what mm -hmm. is our responsibility to our children and to the future generations, and when are we going to stand up and take responsibility? But but the way that Lucy Kirkwood, the playwright, presents it, she presents it you know through these three very human, very complex. And 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 uh, very funny characters, um, but at the same time, she is tackling these really huge, important issues that all of us should really be concerned about today. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, you think about this, this whole point. Where there's a, there's a thing in there too that I thought was very important. The play is not sort of like sort of just flowing out there and it's whatever. There's a lot of there's questions of struggle in there. There's people, what you know, trying to figure out what they do. What's the what's what's their responsibility in the world? And I thought that was something that really got, you know, because it really got expressed in a way that actually where there was differences, where there you know you, they could be expressed and they had an impact on things. And the other people who you know they they were you know trying to struggle to, and argue with the other people with, with some of the people that were not agreeing with them. But it made it made you it made you sit there and think, this is real. This is actually, you know, this is what's going on now. And, and actually, the idea is to not just say, oh, well, we, you know, 
we can't agree or, well, well, oh, well, we can't, you know, we can't get everybody on. But the point was that in that play, people made a, a they made, they made a commitment to doing certain things. And it was imperative that, that, that they not lose that. And I thought it was really brought out very, very well. Well, thank you. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons that we chose to do the play. I had spent uh, two and a half years searching for uh, a climate change play, you know, something that, you know, uh, tackled um, what are really, you know, gigantic global issues. And uh, over the course of the two and a half years, what happened was that I, you know, I, I read everything from, you know, basically enemy of the people to earthquakes in London and, you know, but, but, but nothing really resonated for me because either they were too polemical or too on the nose. And as, as you well know, the whole climate change issue, you know, keeps shifting, you know, uh, uh, year to year. And, and how do you tackle something as large as a, the concept of, of climate change? And then, uh, and then uh, I came across uh, Lucy's uh, uh, play, uh, The Children. And what I love about the play is that it never mentions climate change. It's really dealing with this nuclear accident. Mm -hmm. But, of course, that's an environmental disaster, too. And as we know, climate change is about how we're poisoning the environment, you know, whether that's chemically, whether that's through nuclear, whether that's through carbon, you know, whatever we're doing. And, and so she's able, she's able to, in the play, never talk about climate change. And yet at the same time, she is presenting all of us with this moral dilemma of what is our responsibility, you know, and, and how do we stand up? And we all know that there's a climate emergency uh, going on uh, on our planet. And yet when, when are we actually going to change our behavior to an extent where we're really going to help the planet. And so those issues come up in the play, and yet it's still very specific to these very distinct individuals, you know, these, these three very human. Uh, and, and, you know, what I think, I, I, I think the play is successful because each member of the audience sees themselves in, in these three people. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Now, we actually have, we're going to uh, bring somebody else in for a moment now. Elizabeth Huffman is on the line. Elizabeth. Hi, hi. Hi, how are you? And from now on, we'll call you Eliza. Thank you. Okay. Great. So, uh, have you been able to listen to some of what we've been talking about? Uh, no, I'm uh -huh. sorry. I haven't heard what's been going on uh -huh. from the airport. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, we've, we've talked about you a lot, okay? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no, but what, why don't you jump in here in, ter in terms of what, the, what you saw as the importance of this play? Because, you know, I have to tell you, I mean, I, when I went there and then talking to people after the play, um, no one was sort of like, oh, let's go have a couple beers and do this, this, this. But people were really, they were moved by this. They were moved by this in a way that isn't always seen. So why don't we talk about your take on the play, why, you, why you're in it, why you, you, know, why you, you think it was so important. Oh, well, um, I'm in it because Simon cast me. <laughs> <laughs> he has a reputation. <laughs> a, a wonderful thing. Um, it is a play that I actually came into contact with in Portland quite a few years ago, and I knew when I read it that I wanted to be in this play. 
Um, I felt that it was one of the best written plays I've I've read in in a very very long time. It's very complex. The characters are multi layered, and the 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 subject of um, a nuclear meltdown. And what is actually a better for our environment? Is it nuclear energy or and and um, eliminating coal and the, the the politics involved around that and the um, the potential for great damage to our um, to our environment is 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 something we are all afraid of and. Um, and think about, well, at least I think about, and I know many, you know, socially conscious people think about what our responsibility is to to the children. And I found the character of Rose so um, complicated. I'm still, I'm still just touching the surface of her. Mm-hmm. And that is always a challenge and a great gift to an actor especially when you get to work with Lily Knight and Ron Batita. That's that's a gift and a half. And, of course, Simon guided us Mm -hmm. really beautifully. Um, And we're still still discovering this play. So I think it's a really important play. And as far as what the audience that I've come into contact with has said, almost to a person, they all said they wanted to come back and see it again. Because it's a lot to absorb, and they 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 just loved it and felt very drawn to it. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm one of those people. <laughs> I'm ready. To, <laughs> I'm ready to come back in right away. <laughs> um, I, but I, I want to I wanted to actually you know pin something else out there too because it is you know it was something that really it struck a, a bone in me. It struck a, it's, it just basically struck my heart in 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 terms of seeing how this thing was portrayed and how people were were out there and. And Simon, you know, you actually had a lot to do with, with the way how this was portrayed, how it was brought um, from England to here, you know. And you're thinking, I'm thinking about all this thing about the the the, the title, you know, the children are your the children are your children, or are they everyone's children? Are they human humanity's children? All of these things are posed for people in a way that that you know you can't just turn your head around because there, maybe you know, sometime there was you know a chance uh, people people saying well. This is what we do. This this is just one of the ways it's going to happen. But with this, in the society we live in now, these are very real questions, and we we have about maybe eight minutes to do this. So I'd really like to you know get just get your sense on this because I think it's it's extremely important that people know that this play is a huge, huge, huge thing. I think that you know people have got to see, it. and um, you know. So let's let's jump into this. Can, and uh, I don't know who wants to go first. Not me. Okay. (laughs) Simon, it's you. (laughs) Yeah, I think think that, you know, what I love about uh, the play and what I love about the title of the play is that there's an ambiguity in it, uh, isn't there? Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, who are the children? Are are we talking about the literal children, you know, of Robin and Hazel, the married couple in the play? Are we talking about their grandchildren? That is the children of their children. Are we talking about the children, that is, the young people who are working at the nuclear plant and putting their lives in danger? Are we talking about the children of the future? Are we actually talking about the characters in the play themselves who behave like children sometimes? You know, there's that wonderful 
moment where uh, Ron's character, uh, Robin, you know, rides the tricycle uh, around the stage, you know, so Lucy Cookwood actually makes it literal, you know, um, and so are, are, or, or is it us, the audience, are we behaving like children uh, in our, uh, our lack of response, or at least lack of a unified response, you know, to the climate emergency that's going on on our planet. So it's wonderful. And to think that Lucy Kirkwood, she was 32 at the time that she wrote the play, that, that someone that young has that kind of understanding of humanity um, and the, the behavior of, quite frankly, people like myself, you know, uh, older people, older people, you know, seniors, you know, uh, are we really stepping up and, and, and guaranteeing, you know, a, a, a healthy future, you know, for all the children? Mm-hmm. Now, this, that leads into, um, I think, unfortunately, it's going to be the, the last one we're going to be able to run, I think. But, um, you know, basically, there's, there's something that really struck me. And one of the great things about this play is that the life that it portrays is not sort of nice and, you know, just floating along. It's actually pretty messy. And all three characters have issues and secrets. And, and, and on the one hand, this gives them a lot of depth. And in this world, you rarely have middle, a middle-aged woman or any woman being portrayed with such depth. And on the other hand, the messiness, as they call it, making the, uh, the choices that they're forced to make more real. They're not, they're not blowing, just blowing trumpets or mar- marching off. But they're actually, they're, you know, they are, they're not just marching off to save the world, but without giving too much away, what are they struggling with in their lives and i think it would be good for people to get a sense of that and we only have about maybe i guess uh, five minutes to, to deal with this but let's jump into this simon can you talk to that well i'll, I'll let eliza jump in on that okay go ahead i mean they each of the characters are struggling with interpersonal relationships that they've had over the years and they're very complicated relationships and certainly my character has had other things that have um, been a disappointment in her life. And she she is grappling with making the right decision. And it is not an easy decision to make. And what she ultimately wants from the other two is, is, is a huge, huge um imposition, if you will. Uh, I can't say anything more than that, except that um, they're all struggling with their own um, happiness or not, and the uh, certain unfulfilled quality that each of them have had because of the choices they made when they were younger. And now with Uh, a nuclear meltdown that they are in some ways or feel some feel that partially responsible for because they built it. Um, It is, it is uh, big moral questions are at stake here. And um, I think everybody is messy. (laughs) I know I am. (laughs) Not me. I think think life can be very complicated and challenging. Yeah. And that's what people yeah, identify with all three of these characters. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I want to support, you know, what Elijah just said. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is about the messiness of life, isn't it? I mean, you know, for all of us, exactly. life is complicated and messy. And to be able to write that, you know, as a piece of theater and to be able to have all of those layers of messiness that, that makes these characters so real, it's really an amazing accomplishment, I think, on, on the part of Lucy Kirkwood. And it's why... You know, she's she's such a highly regarded and recognized playwright right now, you know, um, and, and and justifiably so, because to put right. that into basically a hour and 40 minute play and to have all of those levels, uh, that kind of accomplishment needs to be celebrated. Absolutely. All right, folks, we've got to rush on this, but thank you both very much for being here today and giving the, giving the, you know, the basically that sense of what what's going on in the world in, the, in a way that. We don't always get that. Don't always get get the chance to hear this kind of stuff. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Michael. You. Always a pleasure. Yeah, you guys too. And that brings us to the end of yet another show. I want to thank all of my guests, Kristen Henning, Simon Levy, and Elizabeth Huffman. I'd like to also thank my assistant producer Henry Carson, and someone I'm really happy to see again, Federica Garcia. And I'd like to thank each and every one of you for your tuning in. And if you want to write to me, you can at mslate at themichaelslateshow.com. We're going to go out now with a song that expresses a lot of what we've been talking about on this week's show. Stand. Talk to you again next week. things you want are real you have you to complete and there is no There's a midget standing tall And a giant beside him about to fall